We're in a series called Good News for the Not-So-Good. The good news being the Word of God and what God has for us. The not-so-good is for you and me that aren't always uh, uh, living maybe the way we need to be living. As we discovered last week, you know, we're all a work in progress. God's working in our lives. God's working in our hearts. And even though the church at Corinth uh, had a lot of uh, problems and issues going on. Uh, Paul, you'll recall from last week, if you were here, calls them saints, called to be saints, called to be holy, you know, sanctified. And so even in light of, of what God's doing in our lives, in our hearts, God is still at work and is bringing his work to completion and perfection in our lives. And so I, I said then, and I say oftentimes, is the reason you're still breathing is because God's not done working in you. And that is true. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, looking at verses 10 through 17 this morning, in a message, this is number 2 in the series, when you know you're right. We'll, we'll hang on a little bit on that one, but when you know you're right. So we're going to talk about divisions this morning and, and divisiveness versus that of church unity. And so verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's house, household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Uh, and he says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And another, still another, I follow Christ. And then Paul says, is Christ divided? I mean, was Paul crucified for you? Rhetorical question, no. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Once again, another rhetorical question, no. I am thankful, Paul writes, that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so looking at those verses today, we're going to talk about church unity and its dreaded nemesis, church division. Now, division is, within the church is one of the, I think, one of the most serious problems a church can actually face, if not the most serious problem. It can devastate the church's fellowship. It can devastate the worship of the church, the mission of the church, the, really the witness of, of the church to the world unless those problems get solved rather quickly. Now, Paul knew this, therefore, he sought, to he sought to solve some of the problems that the church at Corinth were facing. Now, basically, what was happening is that the church at Corinth was acting more like a group of political rivals than, than the church of God. Have you ever wondered why it is that bad, bad news of church trouble spreads so rapidly, and yet the good news of the gospel seems to spread uh, so, so, so slowly, all right? Uh, now, now, just full disclosure, one of the things I appreciate about Baseline Christian Fellowship, and it always hasn't been this way, but it's the fact that we as a church get along, we as a church welcome people, we as a church love people, we're friendly, and in church I applaud you for that. As I said, it hasn't always been that way, all right? Now, those of you that have come from another church 
might have experienced some tension in some area, maybe division, maybe divisiveness, whatever, because honestly, uh, church, uh, church division happens more often than what it should, all right? Uh, sometimes uh, the areas of division are urgent, sometimes it's serious, and must be confronted really in a biblical manner, and we'll consider some of that today. However, most cases and causes of division are not exactly earth-shattering moments, okay? In fact, uh, they're often quite petty. Uh, For example, Tom Rayner, who blogs about church life, and I've been reading his stuff for years, he wrote an article a while back listing some of the causes behind church fights and uh, even though some of them you know, evolved into a church split, as I read this, keep in mind that I'm not making this up. These are true stories. For example, in one church there was a petition circulating requiring that all church staff be clean-shaven. Think about it. And my question is, well, does that include women too? Are they to shave their legs? Or, you know, I mean, if you're going to be clean shaven, you know. Another church, apparently okay with facial hair, argued over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Pastor Jim, you can have it as long as you want. If you want to braid it, you can braid it, you know, whatever. But, uh, but seriously, you know, division over the appropriate length of a, of a worship pastor's beard. One church got into an argument over whether or not to buy a weed eater, a weed whacker, and it took two business meetings to resolve that issue. For crying out loud, go buy the weed whacker and whack some weeds. You know what I'm saying? Um, Another argument, true, over who has the authority in the church to buy postage stamps. We're talking postage stamps here, you know. They're still under a dollar, aren't they? I don't know, but... um, And yet in another church, hang on, in another church, a deacon had been accused of sending an anonymous letter to various church members. This, he writes, this particular conflict conflict was ultimately settled in the parking lot. Now, I'm guessing it might have been Texas or something like that, you know, someplace in the south where, where the settling in the parking lot took place, you know. But I, I read these things and I thought, you know, talk about pettiness. You know, of course, some matters of division that we face today in the church are truly important and cannot be brushed aside. And then there's also uh, those issues that need to be dealt with in a spiritually mature and a biblically responsible manner, even church discipline, Matthew 18. Uh, Other matters of division, as Rainer points out, are just plain petty. It's like, come on, guys, grow up, you know. And, and, And really, it's up to you and me to recognize the difference. Now, a quick question for you. Before you answer it, hear it out. How many of you are convinced that if Jesus Christ himself came into this church on a Sunday morning and revealed who he was and he began to speak, that we as a congregation would be absolutely convinced that he would bring unity, that everybody would be in agreement, it would unify the city, and so on. Now, before you answer that, let me read a few scriptures to you, because Jesus Christ, yeah, he is the Son of God, 
and we think, well, because he's a son of God, that all controversy would be put aside. But once again, scriptures, John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others ask, how can a sinner, speaking of Jesus Christ, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so the Bible says, John 9, 16, so they were divided. Jesus Christ himself, people were divided. Uh, John 7, verse 12, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. He's leading the multitudes astray. Once again, much grumbling, much whispering, not just a little, major controversy. Once again, imagine Jesus Christ himself having such a diverse reaction among the people. In Matthew 12, 24, it says, This man drives out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Once again, a very serious charge, blasphemy, because they were attributing to the Holy Spirit the works of the enemy. Well, when you, when you attribute the works of the Holy Spirit as being demonic, whatever, that's blasphemy. And that's a serious charge. Now, John chapter 10, 19 and 20, the Jews were again divided, and many of them said, he, Jesus, is demon-possessed and raving mad. But others said, these are not the sayings of a man demon-possessed. Once again, there is division. Many of them, not just one. And so we really have this polarization of different camps. He's insane, he's crazy, not, well, I'm just not sure, but outright attacks on the Son of God. Not, well, maybe his doctrine isn't quite right. This is major controversy. Then, final verse before I move on, John 7, 43. The people were divided because of Jesus. The people were divided because of Jesus. Now, we might want to reconsider then our answer to the question I asked because even in his day, Jesus, when he went around preaching and teaching and healing, whatever, the people, as you saw, were very, very divided. And so we say, well, if Christ was here, then everything would be unified and, 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 and copacetic and everything is going good, but not necessarily true. Now, as many of us know, we are in the second week on our sermon series, Good News for the Not-So-Good, from 1 Corinthians. And in our, Paul, in our text this morning, Paul talks about the various factions that existed here in the church at Corinth. As I said and as I read, some claimed to be followers of Paul himself, some Apollos, some Peter, some of Christ. Now, he doesn't tell us in detail the distinctions of each group and we really don't know exactly how they differed one from another. Neither is there any evidence that Apollos and Cephas ever fanned the flames of division. But we can, just for a minute here, speculate on the nature of their disagreements. Maybe... Some focus more on grace and liberty to the point of letting it become a license to, to sin. On the other side, maybe some were legalists who insisted that Christians must still obey the Old Testament laws. And maybe others were influenced by, by popular intellectual trends and sought to turn Christianity into a, mere, uh, into a mere philosophy rather than actually a life of obedience as a true follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe some were just plain elitists 
and thought that they were the only ones that were really saved. After all, we got the right doctrine, we're correct, and everybody else who's wrong, and everybody else who's lost, you know, we're, we're it. And so having that elitist attitude. Now, those are just some speculation ideas or possibilities to consider, but whatever the differences were, we know that Christians do have a history of finding ways to create division among themselves. And the point that Paul is making here is that we can learn to work out our differences and resolve them, and while doing so, we can learn, really, it it can work, we can learn to get along with one another in spite of not seeing everything the same way. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how we can be a church united, not divided. And by the way, this can help your home life, your marriage if you're married, how yours can be a family united and not divided. It can translate into your relationships, be it with your neighbors or if you're in, if you're in school or college, among your classmates, what might be you know, that way, your friends or whatever, your coworkers. And so this can work out in all different areas of life. And so what are the differences then that, that cause people uh, d- divisiveness, division, whatever? And then how can we develop unity while we're ironing out the differences and the details of those things? The first thing is this. Number one, we need to learn to seek to say the same thing. That's why Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, expecting two very different people with very different ideas to agree may not sound all that likely. But it helps to understand what Paul was getting at when he uses the word agree in the Greek language. Paul uses the phrase, it means to say the same thing. And and, and really, that is where the path to unity begins with this question. In other words, what can we say, what can we say in agreement about this? Ideally, we'll probably get to the point where we can see eye to eye on this, but in the meantime, what can we say? What can we speak? You know, how can we, how can we go about that to say the same thing? Well, we can say something like this. At this point, we might disagree, but you know something? Because I love you, because I respect you and honor you, I'm going to be willing to work this out so it doesn't come between us. It doesn't change our friendship we can still treat one another with dignity and respect. Now, honestly, this is where unity begins, with this willingness, this mindset to find a willingness to find common ground and build from there. Now, unity is not so much a matter of the mind where our thoughts are identical as it is a matter of our will. A matter of our will. In other words, the desire on your part, on my part, the desire to live in unity. Now, of course, there are some who simply aren't interested in in any of that on this level. You know why? Because certain people you will come across in life, they just don't want to be unified. They want to cause problems. Matter of fact, some people, some people thrive on division. Some people thrive on conflict. 
and, and they love conflict too much. But that's why, honestly, you can go to, into most organizations today and everyone uses the same buzzwords and uh, every idea you hear is a carbon copy of someone else's idea. But the people in the organization still can't get along. Why? Because it's, it's as if they want to find something to fight about instead of trying something to be united around. Now, unity is a matter of your will, my will. It's a matter of the will. Division, you could say, is a matter of the won't. Unity is a matter of the will. Division is a matter of the won't. It's the unwillingness to work toward a meeting of the minds because a meeting of the minds can't happen without a meeting of the hearts. And so you have to engage your heart in this as well. Now, some might argue that it was very difficult for the Corinthians to be so united because of differences in background, of personality, and approach. I mean, the diverse congregation that was there. But when Paul urged them to speak the same thing, to be in unity, he was referring honestly to unity in love, unity in doctrine, unity in purpose, which is both essential and mandatory. In fact, the phrase, speak the same thing, is a classical expression used of political communities that were free from factions or different states that entertain friendly relations with each other. Besides, the Spirit of Christ draws us together in a common theme into a common bond. Therefore, Paul's exhortation here to be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment, the words perfectly joined together literally means to be in perfect union with each other to be perfectly joined and united together, to be restored to the perfect union of simply being together. Now the idea behind the Greek word is that of a torn net being repaired and mended, being joined together. So the net can can function for its purpose and a net back then to catch fish, all right? And so that was one idea behind the Greek word of a torn net being repaired and mended so it could be put to use. But the other idea is that of a man's broken and dislocated limb being restored to its proper place. In other words, it's it's also used as a medical term that refers to the setting of a bone that was broken or out of joint. Now, whenever Christians can't get along, the body of Christ suffers. Just as your physical body suffers when something's dislocated, when something's not working right, and well, the body of Christ suffers as well when Christians don't get along. Now, the word was also used by the Greek historian Herodotus for restoring peace after civil unrest and discord. Uh, The church at Corinth was acting, as I said, more like a group of political rivals in the church of God. And so the knitting together, the coming together uh, that Paul desired for the church was a matter of both the mind and judgment, that is, by true and correct doctrine. There's a great quote by John Wesley that that, uh, talks about the differences among Christians. He said, Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. With all doubt, we may. 
Herein all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. Though we cannot think alike, he says, may we not love alike. That's why the Apostle Paul said, exhorting the church at Colossae with the Colossians, he says to be patient and kind and humble and forgiving. He said this in Colossians 3.14, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In perfect unity. Put on what? Put on love. Love. Ultimately, the goal is that as a church, we are all on the same page. We're moving in the same direction. In order to get there, we begin by building on common ground. Though we might not agree on everything, we can on agree on some things that matter. Now quickly, I need three volunteers to join me up front here. One, Richard, and Cliff. I'm going to have you stand right here. You have no idea what you're doing. Face the congregation. Think of unity this way, and this is not new with me. It's from, uh, i got to think, who is it? The God's armor bearer guy, Terry Nance. And so you're in the middle. What we're going to do here is stand next, right here. Join arms here. Join arms. There you go. There you go. So, unity. Think of it this way. You and I tie. We're together. We're together. And guess what? When we're together, you're not going to tear us apart. You and I tie. Unity. U-N-I, capital I, T-Y, tie. We are tied together. We are joined together. That's the idea. That's the word picture I want us to see. Thank you, guys. Give them a hand of applause. All right. So unity, you and I tie. We're tied together. We're in this together. So let's nail down what we agree on and start from there. And there are certain things that we can agree on. Now, here's a second way to confront division. Number two, seek to understand both sides of the story. And that can be hard for us. I read of a teacher who teaches English composition on the collegiate university level. And she gives her students an assignment each semester. After teaching them to write a persuasive essay and having them turn in a paper on the topic of their choice, she then gives them a new assignment. Write a persuasive essay, same topic, but from the other point of view. Mm. And she said this, most students are incapable of seeing their topic from another perspective. See, if, if we want to build unity with someone whose viewpoint is different from our own, the first step is to fully understand what they really believe and where they're coming from. Now, truth be told, we are often tempted to minimize and misrepresent any point of view that isn't identical to our own. Don't believe me? Turn on the news. And we'll see people demonizing the other side, the other viewpoint or whatever. This happens not only in the world, but I'm afraid to tell you it also happens in the church as well. How many have heard about what is called, what is commonly called the worship wars? The worship wars. 
Now, those two words shouldn't go side by side. Worship and warfare, yes. Worship wars, no. One group says the other group wants to turn the church into a rock concert with all their state-of-the-art lights and fog machines and subwoofers that penetrate every fiber of your being. On the flip side, that group says the other group wants every song to sound like an organ recital. Both groups claim to have the more accurate understanding of worship. I, for one, stand before you and will tell you truthfully, I still struggle with this. Because even though I try to understand the concert-like atmosphere, I personally still don't get it. So if you can enlighten me, do so. I kind of get it, but not really. I've had this conversation with lots of people. Don't get me wrong. I like loud music. I'm still young, and I have in my home a Denon AVR3808CI amplifier, a 7.1 channel receiver, which, which Denon rates at 130 watts per channel. I have Clips RF83 speakers. Look it up online. They don't make them anymore, but these speakers are, I measured yesterday, about this tall of me. They have three wolfers on them. They have a horn on them. Each speaker weighs like 100 pounds. They're huge. They're ginormous. I like them. I used to have, I used to have the RF7s. I bought them really cheap. Then I went to California, stupid thing to do, but I went to California to buy the RC7, the matching center channel speaker, and I had that. Then I found an RSW, and I always like Clips brand. I, I had an RSW15, which is two 15 subwoofers in one big thing that weighs over 100 pounds. I even had an end table specially designed, fabricated to fit over this thing in our living room. I like music. I have had this thing going on. Uh, I'll play the Mannheim Steamrollers uh, at Christmas time. And when I do the Hallelujah Chorus, I mean, not only do I hear it, but my neighbors, I'm sure, hear it too. All right? And so I'm just saying I have in my whole system, and I know there's coming a day, and it's hopefully sooner than later, where we're going to downsize because I'm getting older, and I'm going to downsize and sell all that stuff. But I have two subwoofers right now, and I have uh, nine total speakers for my surround sound. And when you, when you watch a movie of sorts and you go like to Raiders of the Lost Ark, kind of the Indiana Jones movies, not that one, but the next one, I forgot what it was. They're in the airplane and the guy's shooting off the, the tail part of it, his, his dad. And uh, anyway, that on surround sound is like phenomenal, very, very good. And it's very fun. But I've had my speakers uh, cranked up sometimes where I can go outside and I can see my windows. I kid you not. My windows are big windows going, is that glass going to break or not? I don't know. There's nails coming out of the walls. Just kidding you. All right. And so I am really an experimenting audiophile, but that's within the confines of my home. I like that, all right? And, uh, and yet... I don't want at a church setting to have ear-piercing music where I can't hear anything else, let alone my worship to God. And I know it's not about me. I get all that, but I'm just saying I'm still working on that. Here's what I'm saying. In order to resolve our differences, we must be willing to make the effort to understand what the other side is saying. Now, 
that means that we need to be willing to entertain the idea, God forbid, that we might not know everything there is to know. Right? We, not, we might not be right about everything all the time. I have, last night I was looking and I want to order a book off of eBay because I'm too cheap to buy a new one, but I want to order a book to get it as cheap as I can. And I want to, it's from Michael, Dr. Michael Brown, which I like to read in his stuff, but he has a book out. And in my teaching of Revelation, uh, it, it, it piqued my interest, but basically it's called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in the Pre-Tribulation Rapture. Now, I know what we as an Assembly of God Church believe. This is what we taught. This is what I teach, everything else. But I just want to learn from what they're saying and why they're saying it. And that's okay. That's good to know what the other side is because, because of, of, of the topic or whatever. So um, I love how the New Living Translation puts Romans 12, 16. It says, live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Isn't that great? In other words, don't be a know-it-all because we don't know it all. I don't know it all. I'm reading Revelation and it's like, wow, there's so much there and I'm teaching this and I'm learning and I know a lot more than when I started, especially from Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, etc. And it's all good. But there's so many questions that, that are left unanswered. And that's why, honestly, church, this is a walk of faith, not by sight, you know, and so without which we can't please God. But there's a line from Winnie the Pooh where he's talking to Christopher Robin, and he makes a statement about what he believes, and then he says this, that's what I think, but I don't suppose I'm right. And of course he's right because he's talking about how people are really okay. But what's more, I think that Winnie the Pooh knew he was right, but he still said it in the most humble way possible. Now, if you're from the deep south, I don't know why, and explain this to me. We talked about this last night, Jill and I did. Uh, people from the south like to use the word humble. Have you ever noticed that? If you can explain that to me afterwards... I'm in, I'm in debt to you because they say humble, I say humble. I don't know what the difference is or what the... John Kilpatrick, humble. Mike Huckabee, humble. You know, it's like, why do they say humble when it's humble? I don't know, but we'll go on. Anyway, here's the deal. Let's give, our, give ourselves a chance to explore the story from the other side. And please understand, I'm not talking about sin or false doctrine or what God's Word says. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, we do need to learn, honestly, the church needs to learn to accept people where they are at and not where you want them to be. Amen? Accept people where they're at from all walks of life, from all political persuasions. Accept people where they're at and not where you want them to be. Romans chapter 14, and I would encourage you, I'm just going to read one verse, but uh, read the whole chapter, read Galatians while you're at it, but Romans 14, 1 from the message, it's a paraphrase, I know, but it says, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do, and don't jump over them all the time, every time they say or do something you don't agree with, even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Amen. All right. And so that's secondly. Number three, the third thing is this. Let's set our sights on that which 
matters the most. There is, you could say, a hierarchy of doctrines and customs and traditions within a church. And within that hierarchy of those doctrines and traditions and such, some are essential, some are fundamental, and non-negotiable. And some are not. They're just differences of perspective, differences of style. For example, does substitutionary death and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ are non-negotiable fundamentals of faith, period. We stand on that. I stand on that. You know, we do. Uh, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God, is a non-negotiable fundamental. The virgin birth of Christ is a non-negotiable fundamental. All these things are, are major to me in that. The inerrancy of Scripture is also a non-negotiable. Now, with each of these, you and I can draw a line in the sand saying, I ain't budging. You know, this is what, this is what God's Word says, and I think we need to have those non-negotiable things that we draw a line in the sand on. In the sand on. But there's, there's other views on, on other matters, such as baptism. You know, uh, we believe in immersion. Uh, some believe in sprinkling. Uh, we believe that water baptism doesn't save you. Some might preach otherwise, you know. Uh, Holy Communion, how do you go about that? You know, uh, COVID kind of changed things for us in the sense of having those little cups and we tear off, I got actually got the lid right here. <laughs> tear off the cellophane, tear that part off. You'd be surprised what's up here. And uh, uh, you tear off the cellophane, you have that. But we used to pass trays years ago. In some churches, uh, they believe that the, the, the bread and the cup are the literal body and blood of Christ, that you're eating his, eating his body and drinking his blood. Uh, some you know, pa- have one cup, and they pass that, and the, and the priest will put the wafer in their mouth. You know, there's all different kinds of, of ways to go about doing that. Um, eternal security. I preached a series on that. I don't believe that uh, we are eternally secure. I believe a person can backslide and fall away from God. I've shared that from Scripture. Um, but, but yet, for many Pentecostals, instead of being eternally secure, we are eternally insecure. You know, save one day, not save the next, you know, whatever. Um, even, as I mentioned, even styles of worship change. And, and a lot of these things can be discussed they can be debated. There's Christians on both sides of the, of the aisle, per se, committed Christians, Christian scholars, theologians that, that often hold differing opinions. That's one of the reasons I want to read Dr. Michael Brown's book. I've always, I've always enjoyed his, his writings and everything else and just wanted to see what he had to say. You know, uh, Oswald Chambers said that the whole point of getting things done is knowing what to leave undone, knowing what to leave in, and what to leave out. Well, in the same way, the trick really to getting along with people and one another and building a foundation of unity, even the body of Christ, is knowing when not to go to battle. In other words, we choose our battles, we choose them wisely. Some things, and I I see this on Facebook often on my wife's Facebook page, you know, uh, with a smile, Um, but I'll see posts on things and it's like, you know, I'm just not going to debate it here. It's just not worth my time. And so I'll put pictures of elk on there or deer or whatever. But, uh, but basically, uh, you have to know when not to go to battle or when not to blow an insignificant detail out of proportion. See, responsible Christians refuse to make every minor difference a major issue. 
Church, let's not major on the minors. All right, instead they focus on pursuing their highest calling. They set their sights on doing that which matters most. Uh, So let's focus on our common purpose together and let's focus on what really matters. And in case you don't know what really matters, uh, one word, souls. Souls, the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And it's to increase heaven and decrease hell. That is our common, common purpose as a church. You see, division happens when there's an inward focus instead of an outward focus. Division happens when we have the mindset when it's all about me and it's not about them or him. All right? Years ago, we had David Ravenhill here. He spoke two different times we had him, and I loved his teaching, and and I loved his his writing and such. But I remember him saying this, and I wrote it down, and I have it in my notes from like 20 years ago. Where God shouts, shout. Where God whispers, whisper. Once again, David Ravenhill said, where God shouts, shout. Where God whispers, shout whisper. And then he defined that. He says, God whispers about women wearing head coverings, and yet some churches shout about this. It drowns out, he says, holiness. It drowns out evangelism. It drowns out the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It drowns out healing. It drowns out compassion. He says, shout where God shouts. God shouts about souls being lost, that none should should perish. That's where God shouts. God shouts redemption from Genesis through Revelation. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so shout where God shouts, but whisper where God whispers. What is he saying? He's saying, don't major on the minors. Don't major on that. In other words, refuse to make every minor difference a major issue. This is why Paul said, looking at our text in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and elegance, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, not with wisdom and elegance, Paul said. What does that mean? Well, there's a modern-day parallel. In Paul's day, there were traveling sophists or philosophers who could be heard in the marketplace of, of any Mediterranean city. And they were, quite, they were quite skilled, they were crafted, they were flashy in their methods of presentation. You could almost say that the Greeks loved the discussion of wisdom more than wisdom itself. And so they loved to debate, they loved to discuss these things, and they knew how to make it entertaining. Well, Paul, Paul is saying here, guys, that's not me, you know, that's not my style, that's not, what, that I, that's not what I do. And so rather than attempting to duplicate this popular trend in the Greco-Roman rhetoric, Paul wanted instead to communicate the gospel in the simplest, most accessible, and ultimately the most powerful way possible. He says, man, I didn't come to baptize, I came to preach Jesus. And I like that. See, this past week, if you haven't heard, Pastor Charles Stanley passed away. And and I listened for years, listened to him, loved hearing him preach, loved hearing him teach. He was a great teacher. 90 years old. And the reason I like Charles Stanley is because his message was so simple and easy to understand. I like that. And I remember hearing a message by him years ago. 
I mean, you almost persuaded me, thou almost persuaded me, but on, on eternal security. And it was like one of the best sermons I ever heard. It's like, okay, but yeah, but the word, you know, so there's, you know, whatever. But, but the simplicity of the gospel. We have uh, uh, Billy Graham as well. He has preached to more people face to face than perhaps any man in history. And you know what's so remarkable about, about Billy Graham's preaching? There is nothing slick to it. As a matter of fact, if you'll hear Billy Graham, it's pretty much the same message, a very basic presentation of the gospel. Man is a sinner in need of a savior. I mean, that's all the Holy Spirit needs to bring someone to Christ. And so church, let's keep it simple. My philosophy is kiss. Keep it simple, saints. You thought it was a different word, didn't you? Didn't you? Okay. I know where your mind was going. But it's the simplicity of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul writes, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That last line, from the simplicity. You know, when it comes down to it, being a Christian is pretty simple. I didn't say easy. I'm saying simple. And really, my goal is to keep it simple. That's why I preached on Christ's passion on Palm Sunday, because I really wanted people to understand what my sin and what your sin did to Jesus Christ. And I think we got a good, uh, uh, for that, knew that, about that. Easter Sunday, Easter changes everything. See, I want people to understand that mankind has a sin problem. Because there's not a lot of pastors today that are telling us what our problem is, and our problem is sin. Our problem in our nation, sin. Not Democrats, not Republicans, it's sin. We have, we have gone away from God. And so, but, but with that, I also want people to understand not only our sin problem, but God's solution to our sin problem. I want people to understand how our sin separates us from God and how God, being a holy God and a righteous God and a just God, how God must punish sin. I've said before, one day a loving Savior will be a severe judge. All right, I want people to know of God's love for mankind. I want them to know that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his goodness. God is a, God is a good God. He is a gracious God. And it's his goodness, his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. I also want people to know what Jesus Christ has done for us and what he's done for us we could never do for ourselves. It's the simplicity of the gospel. It's the simple gospel message that even an angel will be declared Declaring according to Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Think about this. God loves people so much that he's going to have an angel in the tribulation time to preach the eternal gospel. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 14. And the message is this. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. I mean, what really matters here? What was the message the angel will be declaring? And what is that message? It's to fear God. The beginning of wisdom is a fear of God. I mean, fear God. Give God glory. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to mankind. God won't share his glory with another. And so fear God. Give God glory. Worship God. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. I mean, there in a nutshell is the gospel. Fear God. Give glory to God. Worship God, knowing that God's going to judge sinners and sin. 
That's what it's about. Now, it's pretty simple. Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has been quoted as saying, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What an accurate description of the Christian life and really of Christian ministry. It's what Paul said, and Paul did, and what we must do. We set our sights on that which really matters. And may I add, that which is eternal. That which is eternal. This is why Paul said to the church at Philippi, Philippians 3, 3, 13 and 14, he says, but one thing, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. But one thing I do. Simplicity. But one, not many, one thing. You know what we do, mankind? We tend to complicate that which is really simple. Add to it or whatever. You see, today some churches are divided over trivial matters, such as the color of the carpet, pews versus chairs, what style of worship we have or whatever. And some find themselves divided over essential matters, the fundamental non-negotiables. It's up to you and me to discern the difference between the lightweight and the heavyweight, what really matters. And it's up to us to navigate these differences, honestly, with love and respect toward others, even those whom we are sure are certainly wrong. I'm smiling. We can still treat them with gentleness and kindness and even humility. The Apostle Peter said this in his epistle when he wrote to Christians everywhere. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Or if it's in the deep south, humble. In other words, while we're working on to be like-minded, let's focus on the other items as well. To be sympathetic, to be loving, to be compassionate, and to be humble. See, God's desire is that we live together in unity. That we come to a consensus on all matters of faith and practice. Honestly, that's why we have doctrine. Doctrine is a good thing. Doctrine is a great thing. That's why the Bible says we're to watch our life and our doctrine closely. But in some circles, you know, doctrine's like, oh, don't go there. You know, it's like, well, yeah, let's go there, you know. So doctrine's important, but so are a lot of other things, you know, like giving and tongues and faith and hope. And we'll get to this later in the 13th chapter, but Paul also says, in light of all that, the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. Because love lays down its life for another. Love covers a multitude of sins. And until we achieve that unity of thought, honestly, we can still be Christ-like in our behavior toward one another. Even those we don't agree with. Turn to John 17, if you would. John 17, wrapping this up. 
In John chapter 17, we have the priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Verses 20 through 23. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, where Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, John 17, 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That what? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The NIV says, may they be brought to complete unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And so what is he doing? He's praying for believers, for his church, for unity, that they may be one, that they may be perfectly uh, one or brought to complete unity. Here, here's, my, here's my thought. I know we pray a lot of prayers and sometimes our prayers don't get answered the way we want them to. You and me both. But I can kind of surmise that the prayer of Jesus, if anybody's prayer is going to be answered, it's going to be his. Just, just a hunch, all right? It's going to be his prayer. So here's my exhortation to all of us. Let's be the answer to Jesus' prayer. That we would be united, that we would be one. Two more verses, or two more passages. Psalm 133 and Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to go there. Psalm 133, 1 through 3. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head. Pastor Jim's coming. We're going to get a tarp out here. I have a gallon of oil I'm going to pour on you. Just kidding you. He has a beard. I don't. I can't grow one. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. In other words, when the church is unified, there's the anointing. There's the, there's the blessing. And so when you and I, and again, I commend you, this, this church, I commend this church, but when you and I are unified, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is there. The blessing of God is there, number one. The second thing is this, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then it says this in verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, there's a part for us. We make every effort. We do what we can to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Once again, quoting Wesley, 
Though we don't always think alike, as Wesley said, we can love alike. We can love alike. And we can do that anytime, even right now, as we say, God, help me to be that person that brings unity, that brings, you know, that, that oneness that will be part of the body of Christ that will help all of us in the long run to be a witness to the world then that's, that's watching our lives, that are watching your life, that's watching your family, whatever it might be. Amen? Let's all stand to our feet. Hopefully you got something out of this this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, unity. Let's pray. And let's be an answer to Jesus' prayer that we be one. So Father, we this morning commit ourselves to you. We humble ourselves before you, asking for your grace in our lives, asking for your help, God, to be a church united, a church moving in the same direction, a church on on all uh, areas of, of faith and practice, God, are one. And Jesus, help us to be an answer to the prayer that you prayed that we may be one, perfectly united, so the world will know that you are the Son of God, that people would come into a relationship with you. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning that do not know you, they are not ready to meet you, that today would be their day of salvation. God, that you'd help them to understand that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And God, that they can call upon you and surrender their life to you by repenting of their sin and embracing the cross. For those that are here this morning, look this way. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then today is your day of salvation, of making that commitment to Christ. I want to make sure that I give you opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as you'll repent of your sin and doing life your way to start doing it His way and what the Bible says. And if that describes where you're at today in your spiritual journey, I'm going to ask where you're at, put your hand up high and say, Pastor Brian, I need Christ in my life. I need forgiveness in my life. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Just holding steady for a moment. I do this because I want no one pointing a finger at me on Judgment Day and saying, you never gave me the opportunity. You never gave me the chance. The Bible says if we're ashamed of him here, he'll be ashamed of us there. If we don't confess him before men here, he won't confess us before his Father in heaven. And so just giving you opportunity this morning, if there's anyone here that needs forgiveness in your life, You're not serving God right now. You're not living for God right now. But you know better. There's that check in your spirit right now that today you need to repent. Father, I pray your blessing now upon your church. God, help us as a church to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. Tonight is our prayer meeting from 6 to 7 right here in the sanctuary. And then Wednesday night we are in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Also youth group and kids clubs Wednesday evening. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Amen.